News Weekly is an ad-free listener-supported podcast made possible by subscribers like you. Just go to patreon.com slash samishah, that's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H, to support the podcast. Also, stick around after this episode of News Weekly for some fun bonus content. Top Stories of the Week Rupert spoils the ending of Succession after the ending of Succession. Also, we should have just let Trudeau do brownface. All that and more on Newsweek. Hello and welcome to Newsweekly, where we punch the news in the headlines. Weekly. The Emperor of Australia abdicates throne news now. Rupert Murdoch isn't dead, although you'd think he was given the wall-to-wall coverage he's received after his announcement that he's no longer going to be the chairman of his massive media empire, presumably to spend more time as the leader of the Liberal Party, the Republican Party and the Tories. The man who once oversaw a phone hacking scandal that delayed the search for a missing teenager made the shock announcement on Friday with a statement to his staff who wailed and gnashed their teeth in grief. Breaking news, and that is that media tycoon Rupert Murdoch has announced he's going to be stepping down as chairman of Fox and News Corp. His son Lachlan will head up both companies. Mr Murdoch, though, will continue as executive chairman and chief executive of Fox Corporation. Now, in a statement he sent to his staff, he says the companies are in robust health. As am I. That comparison by Murdoch of his companies to his own health is accurate, given he's probably on a daily diet of blood thinners, beta blockers and fistfuls of Viagra, and his news outlets are thin-skinned, heartless and always trying to get a hard-on. The full letter to his employees also says... The statement continues and it continues in part to say we have every reason to be optimistic about the coming years. I certainly am and plan to be here to participate in them. But the battle for the freedom of speech and ultimately the freedom of thought has never been more intense. That battle for free speech and freedom of thought is being fought presumably by his media outlets, which are anti-LGBTQI+, and actively supporting white supremacists who are threatened by the idea of black people. Also think if voice gets up somehow, white people's backyards will be stolen. And once led a weeks-long campaign against a young African-Australian woman who wrote Lest We Forget Manus Naru Syria Palestine on her Facebook, in case you were wondering which side of the free speech battle they're on. The man who has a personal wealth of at least $17 billion then went on to say, and I'm not making this up, I promise, elites have open contempt for those who are not members of their rarefied class. Most of the media is in cahoots with those elites, peddling political narratives rather than pursuing the truth, end quote. Which is a startling admission of guilt on his part, and the only time in his life he's delivered journalistic accuracy. The announcement also included confirmation that Roman Roy, I mean Lachlan Murdoch, will be the sole chairman of the business. Lachlan Murdoch emerged as the clear successor years ago. Most believe he shares his father's political worldview and don't expect a shift in direction. But the 52-year-old will now be calling the shots, wielding enormous influence and carrying responsibility for a media empire both loved and loathed. 
Critics of Rupert Murdoch have had a busy day, none more so than former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who once cut the ABC's budget by $254 million when he was Communications Minister, gifted Murdoch's Foxtel $30 million when he was Prime Minister, and effectively removed limits on media ownership, which increased Murdoch's monopoly in the market. Well, now that he's no longer in office and thus no longer needs Sky News' support, the former PM is not holding back on his attacks. Well, it's a it's a long it's a long time at the top, and it's a big legacy. But it includes Donald Trump uh, leaving the United States more divided, more angry, weaker than it's ever been since the Civil War. I mean, really extraordinary. The divisions in the United States, the polarization, the anger, has been driven in large part, not solely, but in large part, by the angertainment. Uh, a media ecosystem in which Fox News is the largest part. And a divided nation is a weaker nation because it's unable to mobilise to meet common challenges. So he's done enormous damage to the United States, which is, after all, the sheet anchor of our security. So we should reflect on that as Australians. He's been the largest voice, or at least the loudest one, in opposing and resisting action to address global warming. Uh, he's in turning to the United Kingdom. As Nigel Farage said today, Brexit could never have happened without Murdoch's support. So he's pursued populist uh, agendas which have sought to drive attention, uh, ratings, if you like, readership, viewership, uh, based on making people angry and turning them against each other. It's a hell of a legacy. No one braver than a former prime minister with nothing to lose, which is probably why the current government can't bring itself to say anything too critical, like this statement by Penny Wong that's so weak you'd be forgiven for confusing it for Labour's political acumen. On anybody's retirement, uh, the appropriate thing is to wish them well in their retirement. And here's Treasurer Jim Chalmers, somehow saying nothing while saying nothing. I'm not sure what will happen going forward now. I mean, obviously this is a very consequential thing um, and... Rupert Murdoch's been uh, a very uh, influential, uh, indeed central figure in the global media landscape uh, for some time now. And so this is the end of an era uh, at news. Um, how this plays out now with the, the leadership transition and all of the rest of it remains to be seen, but obviously a very significant announcement. Lester was a man. Also, Lester was an employee of the Waystar Company for 40 years. And when a man dies, it is sad. All of us will die one day. That isn't to say there aren't people who have positive things to say about Rupert Murdoch. It just so happens that they're all on his payroll. Here's Peter Credlin, the host of Sky News' TV show Credlin. Now, I've been honoured to meet and speak with Mr Murdoch on a number of occasions. He's a softly spoken man, a, a gentleman. He has a colossal intellect and a really genuine interest in people and politics. It's one of the privileges of working for senior political leaders. You get to meet extraordinary people who shape history. And shape history, he has. In this country, numerous important news sources, like the Australian newspaper, and indeed this TV channel, would never have happened but for him. With a commitment to reporting all the news and analysing it, from all sides, not just the dominant politically correct perspective, Murdoch has helped to keep free speech 
and good journalism alive. And here's Andrew Bolt, the host of Sky News' TV show Bolt Report. Well, I've always enjoyed uh, his company because uh, he's a gossip, uh, like any good uh, newspaper person. He's a gossip. He tells it like it is. Uh, he loves ideas out of left field, which is interesting. You know, you're someone of his age too now, but it's always been the case. You know, as people get older, they tend to cling to what they've done before. Uh, he's quite prepared to just dynamite what is done before if it's not working and start again or embrace the new. You might remember MySpace was one of the few dud decisions he made. He was quite happy to junk it after it turned out to be a dud. Um, he's endlessly curious, and I think that's really, really important. Um, but, you know, obviously when you're uh, an entrepreneur in ideas as well, sometimes you get things wrong, but when you get things right, you get them really right. But in the end, it's, like I say, he's always been, despite his fabulous wealth now, uh, anti-elites, and that is one reason why elites have tended to hate him. And here's Piers Morgan, the host of Sky News' TV show, Piers Morgan Uncensored. My boss, Rupert Murdoch, uh, he's been my boss on and off for 30 years. He's been a visionary leader. His audacity and tenacity has helped build a magnificently successful global media empire. And I've enjoyed working with him and learning from him. Regardless of how you feel about Rupert Murdoch, his retirement, if it actually is that, is going to create a huge change in media and politics, with politicians no longer having him to blame for their own cowardice and average people no longer having him to blame for their addiction to tabloid gossip. No one had this on the 2023 bingo card news now. It's a case of tragic brown-on-brown -brown violence, as Canada's most famous brown man, Justin Trudeau, has accused India of killing a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Justin Trudeau has told the Canadian Parliament there is credible evidence that the Indian government agents were behind the alleged assassination in June of a Sikh separatist living in Canada. Here's what else he said. Last week at the G20, I brought them personally and directly to Prime Minister Modi in no uncertain terms. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. Canada then went a step further by expelling a key Indian diplomat who was the head of India's foreign intelligence services in Canada. India has retaliated to the accusation by punishing Canadians hoping to travel to India. India appears to have halted visa services in Canada, part of an escalating diplomatic dispute between the countries. It's a move that will have severe negative effects on Canadians hoping to reenact Eat, Pray, Love and fans of dysentery. So who exactly was Hardeep Singh Nijar and why would India want him dead? The president of Surrey's Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara, Hardeep Singh Nijar, was viewed by his community as a man of faith and family and a loyal volunteer who stepped up to serve his community. He was also a key figure in the Khalistan movement, seeking a separate state for Sikhs in India, where they are a religious minority. Nijar came to Canada in 1997, seeking refugee status. He provided doctor verification he was tortured by police amid conflict between the Indian government and Sikh separatists. That refugee application was rejected, and it took him several more tries before he got his citizenship, at one point even marrying a local woman in the hopes of securing a passport. 
Now, Niger had been accused by India several times in the past of being involved in or orchestrating terrorist attacks on Indian soil and even issued two Interpol arrest warrants, which Canada didn't comply with. One year later, the 45-year-old would be shot to death in his pickup truck outside of the Gurdwara where he served as president. Now, with the implication of India's involvement in his killing, Niger's associates say the only terrorism in his life was in the way it ended. The Khalistan movement is growing in popularity, as is the Indian nationalist threat against it. Earlier this year, Sikh supporters of Khalistan and Indian nationalists even clashed violently at Melbourne's Fed Square, confusing everyone watching. The thing is, while this is all relatively new to the West, it's a much older issue in India, with the Sikh separatist movement, which it should be noted is a minority movement within the Sikh community, dating back to the 1930s. In 1984, Indian troops stormed the Golden Temple, the holiest site for Sikhs, to flush out armed separatists who were sheltering in the complex. The operation resulted in many deaths and caused damage to the temple. A few months later, the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was shot dead by two of her Sikh bodyguards who were upset with her orders. Her death led to days of rioting in which thousands of Sikhs were killed. In 1985, a bomb exploded on an Air India flight from Toronto to London, killing all 329 people aboard. After a lengthy investigation, two Sikh separatists in British Columbia were acquitted of murder and conspiracy charges in 2005, and a third man was found guilty of manslaughter for his role in making the bomb. So, the Khalistan movement and the controversy around it is much then like the health benefits of turmeric, something Indians have known about for a long time, but the West is just discovering. Meanwhile, Indian media has criticised Western media for its coverage of the crisis, blaming the uncritical support of Canada's claims on racism. In comes a random BBC columnist to talk of how the West, a part of the world that literally invented the art of extrajudicial killings on foreign soil, have condemned countries like Russia, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Zero sense of history, zero sense of irony. They don't even name countries like the United States, Israel and others. A kind of geopolitical racism that just flows like so many little rivers. It's actually amazing. It's an art form and I actually say salam to the Western press for the easy manner in which they let this racism and this condescension flow. Western media terror apologists and these gentle racists have been cheerleaders of a far more structured condescension of an India that is clearly rising. Which is why you'll see a wholly Western, largely white commentariat talking shop about how India shouldn't be pushing its luck, how India cancelling visa applications isn't diplomatic etiquette, why this doesn't suit India's agenda, how India's posture indicates guilt, even how the Khalistan issue is actually India's fault. In their urgency to prove a point, however small or big it may be, Trudeau, his surround sound warriors and the Western press fail to acknowledge a reality that viewer, you and I both know, has nothing to do with chest-thumping nationalism. This is a country, or this has become a country, that is far more self-assured than it was perhaps in the 1980s when Trudeau's father tried something similar with India. India is far more sure-footed in international relations now than it has perhaps ever been before. Trudeau may learn it the hard way, but so will anyone too lazy to take the time and make their peace with a new India. It's a new India, but it seems the problems are old. So why is Canada then taking this unprecedented stance of making this issue so public? 
Well, here's a more reasonable voice, Indian politician and historian and author Shashi Tharoor, with some analysis worth noting. Uh, I believe um, the story is that it was triggered by the fact that a, uh, a media leak was about to happen of this allegation. A media story is one thing for a prime minister, for political reasons, to want to get ahead of a media story. Uh, and and uh, you know, it, it really looks like it's uh, uh, doubling down on the pandering to a certain political element uh, in that country. Uh, we know the government uh, is, is uh, dependent upon certain support. Um, and perhaps this is why they needed to do that. They have elections also coming up very soon. So for all of these reasons, Canadian politics has led to a situation where a very valued relationship between two countries has been thrown into jeopardy. And I am really surprised the Canadians would do that. All of which means if World War III kicks off because of India and Canada, America and China, they're going to be pretty pissed. Russell Brand news now. Comedian, TV personality, film actor and YouTube conspiracy theorist Russell Brand has been accused of sexual assault by several women. And he's definitely guilty. That's it. That's all the story deserves. Because he did it. Sam Newman news now. Footy star, TV personality and professional bigot Sam Newman has told fans at the AFL Grand Final to boo the welcome to country because he's a massive racist piece of shit and anyone who thinks he isn't is a fucking moron. That's it. That's all this story deserves because he is and his fans are. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. But stick around, I have a little bit of a bonus content thing happening here. So back around early 2022, when I started News Weekly, I was also doing another podcast called Murdocracy. It was myself and journalist Cam Wilson, who writes for Crikey, and we both were looking at News Corp's influence on the world. It was a really interesting podcast. We talk about things and, and, and discuss what's happening in News Corp in terms of its investments and in terms of media attacks on it and its attacks on other people, etc., etc. Um, and the podcast went on for a while and then finally because of both of our work commitments it could no longer be sustained however in mid 2022 i did a two-part series on that where i looked at what i tried to describe as a a non-hyperbolic history of Rupert Murdoch and News Corp. Now, it was done in mid-2022, so it's a little bit out of date. And also, more importantly, it's not comprehensive because to fully do a real comprehensive history of News Corp and Rupert Murdoch's influence on the world would require several hours of documentary making. And there's already some amazing stuff out there. But you know what? I did a lot of research for this one and I think I did a good job. And so I'm now sticking that entire episode. Um, it is actually broken up over two episodes, but I'm sticking the whole thing here for you to listen to right now. If you don't want to listen to it, then I'll see you right back here next week on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly, as you already know. But if you do want to listen to it, well, here you go. This is from Murdocracy, a podcast that Cam Wilson and I used to do in 2022. So, before we look at what's in the public realm, I want to take a look at the mythology that Newscope creates for itself. So I headed over to the Newscope website, which is newscope.com. Not .com.au.com. Um, and on the Newscope website, there is a section, the About Us section, which has a company bio. And I'm quoting here. What started as a small newspaper in Australia in the 1920s has grown to comprise some of the world's most iconic brands in media and information, thanks to the leadership, 
creativity and curiosity of Rupert Murdoch and his father, Sir Keith Murdoch. Curiosity is definitely the noun that sticks out over there. So according to the timeline on the website, it all begins in 1785 in London. Which is weird, because as we'll find out in a bit, News Corp was originally founded in 1980 as a holding company for News Limited, which is where the Murdoch story begins, except News Limited wasn't created in 1785 either, but in 1923, and not in London, but in Adelaide. And as we all well know, nothing good ever comes out of Adelaide. But that's a story for another time. So, okay, look, let's look at the website history again. Well, it starts in 1785, right? In London, where the Daily Universal Register, a London newspaper with an ambitious name, is launched. That newspaper is renamed to The Times, a name the paper still carries today. From 1785, we jump to 1801, where there's a portrait on the website of a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman. Yes, that's right. I'm talking about US President Alexander Hamilton, who looks nothing like Lin-Manuel Miranda in the painting. See, in 1801, the erstwhile president started a newspaper called New York Post. Three years later, he was killed in a duel by his vice president, a custom America really isn't too far away from bringing back. Next stop is 1817 on the website with the establishment of J&J Harper Printers, which is now called the publisher HarperCollins. We then take a brief detour into the history of HarperCollins and how it published affordable editions of Shakespeare and the Pilgrim's Progress. There's further focus on the printing press with the Times using a new type of printing technology called the Walter Press in 1868. 1889 is the creation of the Wall Street Journal, where today you can find several articles about teenagers who bought their own homes with nothing but hard work, moxie, and a giant inheritance from their millionaire parents. The bio goes on in this fashion for a little longer, making stops along the way to highlight major moments in printing and publication. Until finally, in 1921, we have Keith Murdoch, father of Rupert Murdoch, becoming chief editor of a medium-sized newspaper, the Melbourne Herald. The website states, he will eventually expand the Herald Group's business holdings to include the News Limited Company of Australian Newspapers. Which is a lovely bit of understatement. It's very much like saying Archduke Franz Ferdinand stopped to get a sandwich and then a few years later Lenin moved into a house in Moscow. The website doesn't then dwell on Keith Murdoch, instead rushing back to the further adventures of HarperCollins, the creation of everyone's favourite serif font, New Roman, uh, by The Times, that's right, I bet you didn't know that, that The Times newspaper created The Times New Roman font, and the editorial leadership of The New York Post. Rupert Murdoch makes his first appearance on the website in 1953 when we're informed of his inheriting his father's interest in the Adelaide-based The News, of which he became publisher, and joins the board of News Limited. The picture here, though, isn't of Rupert Murdoch, who would have just been 22 years old at the time. Instead, it's of a front page of The News, the Adelaide newspaper, featuring a photo of Rupert Max Stewart, an Aboriginal man who was convicted of murder in 1959. Now, the story of Max Stewart and Rupert Murdoch's involvement isn't detailed here on the website at all, but it's worth a quick detour. See, Murdoch was, at the time, against the death penalty. Under Rohan Rivett's editorial stewardship, the news published explosive details about the case that 
often contradicted the findings of the Adelaide judiciary and even led to some appeals. Murdoch even bankrolled the search for Stewart's co-workers, and Murdoch even personally wrote editorials demanding the sentence be commuted and the death sentence no longer applied. Even the Royal Commission into the case was attacked by the papers so vehemently that the commissioner launched a libel case against Rupert Murdoch and his editor, Rohan Rivett. In the end, Max Stewart's case was commuted to a life imprisonment of which he served 11 years. He went on to become a respected elder and even met the Queen in Alice Springs once. Despite the libel case not finding fault, Rupert Murdoch did fire Rohan Rivett, who had been the editor since 1951. Since then, Murdoch is quoted as saying, There's no doubt that Stewart didn't get a totally fair trial, although it's probable that he was guilty. I thought this at the time. In those days, although less so now, I was very much against the death penalty. It's just interesting that that's the photo they went with, of the first time Rupert Murdoch probably fully understood the power of the news. From there on, there's various entries about the various jewels in the News Corp crown. The most recent being in 2021, where it says, and I'm quoting here from the website, News Corp and Facebook reach a multi-year agreement to provide access to trusted news and information to millions of Facebook users in Australia through its Facebook news product. It seems that despite the hyperbole that News Corp publications excel at, the website itself is a master at understatement. Before we get into the stuff that the biography of News Corp on its own website leaves out, it's worth considering what it's put in. See, News Corp is a young company. News Limited, the original version, dates back to the 1920s, but that's not that long ago either. But by beginning its story not with its own creation, but the creation of entities it's purchased, like The Times and New York Post and HarperCollins, it can link itself to the older traditions of publishing and news, of printing presses and innovation, and championing voices and creating history. In buying these businesses, News Corp didn't just buy diverse interests, it bought itself a historical story, a myth that it can sell. So behind the myth then, what is the reality? Well, see, the reality is that News Limited was created in 1922 by James Edward Davidson, a journalist and former editor of the Melbourne Herald. The story goes that Davidson was travelling on the Melbourne-Adelaide steam train when he sat next to an old friend, a miner, M-I-N-E-R, not M-I-N-O-R, named Gerald Musson. On that journey in 1921, Davidson and Musson came up with the idea of a new afternoon paper, the Adelaide News, and for it to be owned by a company called News Limited. If you listen to the first episode of Murdocracy of this podcast, we interviewed University of Melbourne Professor of Political Science Sally Young, who has published an excellent article on the conversation titled The Secret History of News Corp, a Media Empire Built on Spreading Propaganda. Her research basically shows how it wasn't a coincidence there was a mining industry professional involved in the birth of News Limited. See, Gerald Musson was a PR man who worked for an industrial complex called 
Collins House, which dominated the mining and manufacturing industry then and has gone on to create Rio Tinto, Carlton and United Breweries, Dunlop Rubber and Durex, among other major companies. But Collins House was first and foremost a mining company itself, or at least mining was the major source of its wealth. And with Collins House's guidance, James Edward Davidson had previously bought and run two newspapers in Broken Hill and Port Pirie, which had served as counterpoints to the mining unions there. Basically, they were set up to break up union influence on the mines. In fact, the first shareholders list of News Limited featured many key people from Collins House. I'm skimming over a lot of detail here, so do read Sally Young's excellent article on the conversation or buy her excellent book, Paper Emperors, The Rise of Australia's Newspaper Empires, which goes into a lot of this in great detail and depth. So about the same time that News Limited is being set up, a 36-year-old Keith Murdoch had returned from London to be appointed as editor and then managing editor of the Herald Empire. Seven years later, he purchased a share in the Brisbane Daily Mail, as well as the competing Courier, then amalgamated the two newspapers into today's Courier Mail. By 1929, Jim Davidson, however, had been pushed out of his control over News Limited, rumours being due to his increased alcoholism. He died a year later of pneumonia in a London hotel room. By this time, Keith Murdoch had been invited to hold 2,700 shares in the news, the Adelaide newspaper, by the immensely wealthy businessman, politician and father figure to Keith, William Bailieu. By the way, Bailieu also happened to be the head of Collins House, that place which helped set up the newspapers, used to bust up the unions and behind the scenes owned and ran News Limited. That same year, News Limited managed to take over the venerable and profitable Adelaide Advertiser, thus creating a monopoly in Adelaide. And two years later, William Bailieu sold 31,000 shares of his own to Keith in a show of remarkable generosity. By the time Keith Murdoch died in 1952, he had enough of a stake in News Limited to leave his only son Rupert with the beginnings of a media empire. While Keith was ambitious, that pales in comparison to his son's boundless appetite and energy. Contemporaries of the time describe a 22-year-old who never grew tired, was always running up and down stairs in his office, and clearly had bigger ideas than his father even. Which is probably why, 15 years later, Rupert Murdoch had amassed a portfolio of newspapers worth more than $50 million. In Jerome Tussil's book, Rupert Murdoch, Creator of a Worldwide Media Empire, Murdoch is quoted as saying, I was brought up in a publishing home, a newspaper man's home, and was excited by that, I suppose. I saw that life at close range and, after the age of 10 or 12, never really considered any other. And he lived that description. At Geelong Grammar School as a child, he was the co-editor of the school's official journal and editor of the student journal. He interned at the Melbourne Herald and, while at Oxford University, managed the Oxford Student Publications Limited. Interestingly, he was also, while at Oxford, a committed communist with a bust of Lenin in his room and was nicknamed Red Rupert. So, yeah, you know, some things, they changed, it seems. 
After his father's death, Rupert had to liquidate the family stake in the Melbourne Herald for tax purposes. But any shortfall in the News Limited empire was quickly filled up when in 1956 he bought the failing Sunday Times in Perth. Then a whole slew of other newspapers in various states, including the Daily Mirror in Sydney, which he turned into a massive success. The key to that success, which he replicated for almost all his publications, was what The Economist has called the creation of the modern tabloid. Eye-catching headlines, sports and scandal. Early on, he'd identified the human hunger for gossip and the role of newspapers in feeding that hunger. It's the kind of inventiveness and innovation along with the single-minded focus that reminds one of great inventors and effective serial killers. It wasn't until 1964 that he finally established the national broadsheet, The Australian. Since then, the paper has covered such notable stories as the Australian Wheat Board funneling hundreds of millions of dollars to Saddam Hussein in 2005, several investigative articles about the Kevin Rudd government's Building the Education Revolution policy, and Yasmin Abdul-Majid's Facebook. So, you know, clearly a national resource, I guess. Rupert Murdoch had also started expanding News Limited's remit beyond just newspapers, buying an ailing record label, Festival Records, in 1961. Within a few years, he turned it into such a success that up to 90% of its annual profit was used to subsidise his other media ventures, and it was still successful. While touring New Zealand 1964 with friends, Murdoch read of a takeover bid for a Wellington paper by a British-based Canadian newspaper magnate. On the spur of the moment, he launched a counter-bid in the same way that you and I might impulse buy a nice pair of pants. A four-way battle for control ensued in which the 32-year-old Murdoch was ultimately successful. This became News Limited's first international investment. By 1968, he had plunged into the British market, acquiring several British tabloids, including News of the World and The Sun. In 1973, the first foray into the United States began with the purchase of the San Antonio Express and News and the New York Post in 1976. By this point, Rupert Murdoch had a system. Profitable businesses were used to subsidize new acquisitions, which were almost always pre-established loss-making newspapers. He then turned the new business around by introducing radical management and editorial changes and fighting no-holds-barred circulation wars with his competitors, things that he was able to do because of his unique micromanagement style. Up until now, all these investments had been done under the News Limited umbrella. In 1979, however, Murdoch established News Corporation, a holding company for News Limited. Hey Sammy, I hear you ask, what's a holding company? Fair question. I had to look it up to be sure myself. Basically, a holding company is a company that doesn't actually produce any goods or services on its own. Its entire purpose is to hold controlling interests in other companies. So in this case, News Corporation or News Corp, holds News Limited, or as it's now known, News Corp Australia, along with News UK, which owns all the Murdoch British press, New York Post, HarperCollins, and hundreds of other smaller companies. All of this is possible because the parent holding company reduces the overall risk for the shareholders. Got it? Not really? Okay, look, look at it this way. News Limited had been set up to buy newspapers, and it did that. But by now, Rupert Murdoch has started to realise his appetite was too small for one medium. 
1984, he'd bought a sizable stake in 20th Century Fox Film Corporation, buying it from oil magnate Mark Rich, who had just been sent to jail for trading with Iran during the height of the hostage crisis. And by 1985, Murdoch had become a US citizen so he could own local TV stations. That same year, his sizable stake in the 20th Century Fox became complete ownership and it wasn't long before Murdoch owned TV stations, movie studios, record labels, magazines and of course, newspapers across America. And all of them sitting under the umbrella of News Corporation. By the late 1980s, Murdoch had broken the control printing unions had over British newspapers by creating new facilities that combined modern computing with newer printing technology within the offices of the newspapers themselves. What's now known as the Wapping Dispute led directly to the severe decline of trade union influence in the UK and to a revolution in newspaper publishing practices globally. If you want more information on this, I highly recommend listening to David Dimbleby's excellent podcast miniseries, The Sun King on Audible. It even gets into the phone hacking scandal of News of the World and the origins of Fox News in far greater detail than I will manage here. If this bio attempted to be even vaguely comprehensive, you'd be listening to me spending the next three hours minimum just listing businesses that News Corporation bought and sold, like how it acquired publisher Harper Row and merged with another publisher, William Collins and Sons, in 1989 to form Harper Collins, or how between 1993 and 1995 it acquired the Hong Kong-based Star TV, which basically led to the boom of satellite TV in large parts of Asia and introduced me to Baywatch and MTV in Pakistan, two things that led an indelible mark on my psyche. By 1988, he'd launched Sky News in Britain, which became the first 24-hour news station in Britain by 1997, although Murdoch sold his interest in it by 2018. Sky News in the UK, then, is no longer a part of News Corp, the way its Australian counterpart still remains. The Australian TV market was a harder one to break into as cross-media ownership laws prevented anyone from owning a newspaper and a TV station in the same city, necessitating the creation of Australian News Channel, a subsidiary of News Corp Australia in 1996, just to launch Sky News. Murdoch lobbied aggressively to have these laws changed, which he was finally able to do under a Liberal Party government in 2007. Sky News is now wholly owned by News Corp Australia. There have been scandals a many and controversies without end. Fox News became a thing in 1996, created to appeal to a conservative audience and placed under the stewardship of Roger Ailes, a media consultant for Nixon, Reagan and Bush Sr., who resigned in 2016 after being accused of long-term sexual harassment by many female employees. In 2009, The Guardian reported on News of the World and several other of Murdoch's UK papers hacking the phones of public figures, celebrities and politicians. One of the figures who's been described as personally responsible for encouraging this behaviour was the Daily Mirror editor at the time, Pierce Morgan, whose new talk show is launching this year under the News UK banner and will be syndicated to Sky News in Australia. In 2005, News Corporation purchased MySpace. The Wall Street Journal joined the family in 2007 for the bargain price of $6 billion. And on and on. By 2013, News Corporation was the world's largest media company in terms of total assets and the fourth largest in terms of revenue. But the scandals were catching up. 
There was the phone hacking in the UK, along with an editor being caught bribing police for exclusives on stories that led, according to the editor himself, to the suicide of the subject of those stories. In the US, there were the FBI investigations into the phones of 9-11 victims being allegedly hacked, potential misleading of investors by senior executives, and bribing a member of the US military to obtain a photo of an imprisoned Saddam Hussein wearing only underwear. And in Australia, allegations were made that a news corporation subsidiary had used hackers to undermine pay TV rivals in Australia and elsewhere. Some of the victims of the alleged hacking, such as Allstar, were later taken over by Murdoch's company. And so, in 2013, Murdoch split News Corporation into two publicly traded companies. News Corp, which was responsible for publishing and Australian broadcasting assets, and 21st Century Fox, which consisted primarily of media outlets. Rupert Murdoch remains chairman for both companies. Indeed, the News Corp logo is his handwriting. Whatever opinions you might have of Rupert Murdoch, it's worth pointing out the sheer size of his achievement. Inheriting a family newspaper didn't need to result in, the multi, in a multinational mega corporation. Indeed, the children of many media moguls have gone on to squander their parental gifts. And whether that's what his own children do remains to be seen in both real life and the next season of Succession. But in the meantime... For us here in Australia, Newscope Australia remains a gigantic presence in our media landscape, with more than 8,000 staff nationwide and owning everything from approximately 142 newspapers, 30 magazine titles, digital media like realestate.com.au, taste.com.au, a 65% ownership of Foxtel and shares in the Brisbane Broncos NRL team. And as we've detailed on recent episodes of Murdocracy, News Corp Australia are on a buying spree of digital content creation companies these days that shows that they have their sights firmly on dominating the future as well. 